Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I'm going to state the obvious, maybe not so obvious, that life is full of questions. Life is full of questions, but I mean that at first literally. I mean, have you ever stopped and noticed how many questions that we ask or answer on any given day? I mean, questions asking for information. What are you doing? Where are you going? Questions asking for clarification. What did you mean by that? Questions asking for help. Can you lend me a hand for a sec? Questions asking for directions. Can you tell me where to find questions asking for permission or approval. Is it okay if life is full of questions? Practical, functional ones like the ones I just mentioned, but life is also full of bigger, deeper questions too, right? I mean, questions about meaning. What is the point of all this? Why are we here? Questions about purpose. What are you living for? What motivates you to get up in the morning? Questions about commitment. Who or what matters the most to you? Questions about destiny. Where do you want to find yourself in 10 years, 20 years? Where is your life ultimately headed? Life is full of questions. And have we noticed that Jesus asked a lot of questions? In fact, questions were often the hallmark of Jesus' encounter with others. I mean, if you look and listen carefully as you read the scriptures, asking questions often was one of the primary ways that Jesus taught and preached. I don't know if you've ever made a count, but the Gospels, the Gospel record, all four, record more than 100 questions asked by Jesus. But there is one question, one question he asked everyone who ever hears about him. One question he asks everyone who ever encounters him, and it's a question that everyone who hears about Jesus, everyone who encounters Christ, must answer. And today, as we turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, we're going to be confronted by this question. It's a question that Jesus asked his first disciples, because again, it's a question that Jesus asks of all who follow him. And as you're going to hear in just a second, if you're not familiar with this question I'm referring to, it's the kind of question that cuts right to the heart of the matter. It's the sort of question for which a lot of answers can be given, but for which there is only one answer that is right. And because of that one correct answer and its far-reaching implications, there may be no more significant question than this one in all of life. So hopefully by now you're there at Luke chapter 9, looking at verse 18. It's also on the screen. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, 
the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. We're going to actually look at this episode. We didn't read the rest. If you had your Bible up, you could tell it was a little bit more. I'm going to look at this brief episode in two parts. So today, we're going to focus on the initial conversation that Jesus has, the reply he gets from his disciples, and then how Jesus responds. And next Sunday, so hopefully you'll come back or listen online, next Sunday we're going to reflect on the second half of what Jesus has to say to his followers in light of the conversation they're having together. But as you heard, it all begins with a question. It all begins with a question. On the other side of feeding so many with seemingly so little, what we looked at last week, satisfying the appetite of a crowd of more than 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish, in the aftermath of 12 baskets of leftovers. And as we learn from, the, from John's gospel account, the crowd's forceful impulse to get another miracle meal and to make Jesus king, Jesus has retreated to a place, a posture of prayer with his disciples. And Luke tells us, if you were paying attention, it's out of this sacred space of conversation of communion with his heavenly Father, that Jesus turns to his followers and asks them a pointed question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Now the disciples have been following Jesus on this long journey across the land and regions of Galilee, so no doubt they've picked up on the speculation of the people, you know, the average Israelite, how they size Jesus up. And the fact that Jesus has become someone to talk about, the talk of the town, as we like to say, the fact that Jesus is someone people are talking about is evidenced earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in this same chapter, chapter 9. Actually, if you go back to verse 9 in this chapter, when we're briefly told even King Herod was asking about him. Who is this Jesus? Jesus recognizes the crowds that have followed him. Those who gathered to hear him and be cured. Those who listened to his teachings and then questioned him. And those who more recently pressed in on him. The crowds by now have sized him up and formed their opinions. And so initially, what Jesus wants to know from his disciples is, what have you heard about me? What's the word on the street? What do the opinion polls suggest about my true identity? And as you heard, in response, the disciples parrot back the three standard answers everyone has come up with. By the way, these are the same answers, back to, in this chapter, verse 9, that King Herod receives when he's making inquiries about Jesus. The same three answers. And can you picture in that moment when Jesus asked the question, so, you know, what's the word on the street? Can you picture the disciples, each of the disciples scrambling, perhaps even talking over each other as they look to share what they've heard? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. In Mark's gospel account of this episode, by the way, this is what King Herod concluded, that Jesus was John the Baptist. King Herod, by the way, if you don't remember, beheaded John the Baptist, killed him. And so Herod concluded, this is John the Baptist come back to life. Well, there are others others who, who speculate you're Elijah. Elijah was a popular theory because Elijah, we might remember, never died but instead was swept up into heaven in a fiery chariot. And ever since then, prophets like Malachi, for instance, were anticipating Elijah's return, or at the very least, someone in Elijah's spirit to come back and usher in the salvation of all the people. 
oh, well, of course, some folks, uh, you know, they think that you might be one of the other ancient prophets. You know, someone say like, Jeremiah, you know, come back to life. Everyone had their theories. Everyone had their theories. People, especially in crowds, are rarely shy about voicing their opinions. And more often than we realize, not coincidentally, those opinions in crowds that we are very comfortable saying out loud, those theories that we have tend to be based, surprise, surprise, tend to be shaped entirely on the perspectives, the assumptions, and the factions to which we're partial to. Now, do you notice Jesus' posture as the disciples respond to his question? He neither affirms nor denies any of their answers. Jesus doesn't interrupt them or react in any way. He just listens, allowing his disciples to share what they've learned, what they've heard, the consensus of the crowd when it comes to the preferences, the ideas, the expert opinion of others. Once they're finished, however, Jesus has a follow-up question. And as it quickly becomes clear, this is the real question he wanted to ask as Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? The first question, who do the crowd say that I am, really sets up the second question, who do you say that I am? I mean, and we do this all the time in our relationships and conversations. We begin more broadly in search of an answer. So what do people order here? What do people order here? How's everyone feeling about the new boss? What's the word of mouth on this movie or show? We start beginning more broadly in search of an answer, but then we pivot in looking for a more specific response. Well, what do you like to eat when you come to this restaurant? How do you think the new boss is doing so far? Did you see? Did you like that movie, that show? Initially, after wondering aloud what the crowds are saying about him, Jesus adds the all-important but. Right? But what about you? Because Jesus is much more interested in the assessment, the confession of his disciples, those who profess to believe in him. By repeating his initial question in more personal terms, Jesus is basically saying, what I most want to hear is what you think. And be clear, be understand, Jesus isn't asking his disciples a multiple choice question to choose between the three options, the most commonly held answers about his identity. You know, something else to remember in the Gospel of Luke, remember earlier, one chapter back in chapter 8, do you remember that sudden storm, sudden storm on the water where the disciples were convinced they were going to drown and then this, this raging tempest was immediately ceased with but a word from Jesus, and in the aftermath of that, do you remember? The disciples asked each other, who is this? Who is this that he commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him? So now, a little bit later, Jesus is basically asking all of them, you know, you've had some time to chew on and talk amongst yourselves about that question, you know, you asked back at the boat. What have you come up with? Jesus, in looking at each disciple in turn, is probing for a more intimate answer. Their answer really to the question of why as much as who. Jesus is asking, why are you following me? Why have you left behind everything you know? Who do you 
say that I am. Now, it doesn't matter if you look at Matthew, Mark, or Luke. The gospel writers don't offer us much detail in terms of what happens next. But there are a couple of things I think we ought to notice. First of all, did you notice all the disciples are not answering Jesus like they were the first time? When Jesus says, who do the crowd say that they am? The disciples are, ooh, 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 ooh. But it's just Peter who speaks up here. And second, while we don't get this detail from Luke's account, Matthew, in his version of these events, when Peter does chime in, Matthew shares with us that Jesus clarifies the answer that Peter has given is not from himself, but from the revelation of the Father, the discernment of the Holy Spirit. So if you put these together, in other words, what it appears is the disciples hesitate and struggle in answering the question, but who do you say that I am? It's not hard to imagine, is it, the awkward silence between Jesus' question and Peter's eventual response. How long were the disciples shuffling their feet, trying to avoid eye contact with Jesus? before the Holy Spirit put the words on Peter's lips. They were quick to answer, right? They had a lot to say in speaking about what others surmised about Jesus. But they remain oddly silent. They seemingly struggle even to make a claim, just to say something out loud, to take a risk to confess the truth that might cost them. And beloved, as so-called followers of Jesus, are we any different? I mean, we're comfortable repeating what we've heard about Christ from others. But when it comes to answering for ourselves about who Jesus is, we tend to remain conspicuously silent. Many Christians have grown up in the faith, have been raised in the church. Others of us, as Christians, have come to faith and learned about Jesus through a particular ministry or a dedicated pastor, teacher, or mentor. And when it comes to understanding the question of who Jesus is, the answers that we repeat, born of tradition and creed, like we shared just a few moments ago, are both a valid and a valuable place to start. Because all explorations, all revelations of who Jesus is begin with what we've heard from others reflecting upon what we've inherited and starting to build on the faith that we've gleaned from our parents, our pastors, our peers. That's all well and good. But a full, abundant relationship with Jesus is not and cannot be forged simply by repeating back or leaning solely on what others have told us about Christ. The gift of faith we are given is not grown. It is not matured based on living with, living for Jesus vicariously through the relationship that other people have with Christ. There's a difference. There's a difference between having information about Jesus and experiencing life in and with Jesus. Having knowledge about Jesus has nothing to do with knowing who Jesus is. And many of us have knowledge about Jesus, 
But if we're honest, we don't know who Jesus is. I've shared this before, and it's challenging for me, hard, of Christians. I've never encountered Jesus. I've never heard Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. I pray. I struggle. I read the Bible. Nothing. You know a lot about Jesus, but you don't know who Jesus is. And if you think I'm off base here, let's just stick with the scriptures. Consider the Pharisees, for example, the theologians, the teachers of the law, the ones who went to seminary. Save for Nicodemus, remember him? Save for Nicodemus, these religious experts obviously are unable to recognize who Jesus is. Meanwhile, this is interesting to me, meanwhile, someone like Martha, remember Martha, Mary and Lazarus' sister? Martha, because she didn't just know about Jesus, but was a friend of Jesus, the Bible says, Martha knew who Jesus is. She declared it. Do you remember? She declared who Jesus is at a pivotal moment of her life after her brother had died. Martha says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Beloved, knowing who Jesus is goes beyond having information with, about Jesus. Knowing who Jesus is comes from experiencing life in and with Jesus. The good news is that God and Christ came into this world to redeem all creation and to reconcile and restore community. But that redemptive, restorative work starts at the individual level in the changing and transformation of every human life. And that change, that transformation, doesn't come from knowing about Jesus. It comes from knowing and experiencing Christ firsthand. And this, is, this may be an eye-opener for many of you because we've settled, I've said this before, for a transactional gospel. Do you know about Jesus? Do you know Jesus died for you? Do you know that Jesus died to forgive your sins? Do you know that if you believe in Jesus, you can have eternal life? Information about Jesus. And that's a place to start. But there's that really interesting story Jesus tells, that parable about the sheep and the goats. Do you remember? With the people who get up there and say, we knew about you, Jesus. And Jesus says what? I never knew you. Because they didn't know Jesus, they knew about Jesus. And in that parable, Jesus says, the people who know about me, who know me, excuse me, who know me, act like me. Walk like me. Engage others like me. So I don't know how you're sitting here receiving this, but this might be a big moment for you. Because you've lived all your life going, I'm good. I'm great. I know about Jesus. Good for you. Join the club. There are a lot of people who know about Jesus. Do you know who Jesus is? But what about you? Who do you say Jesus is. Don't tell me what your mom told you. Don't tell me what your dad told you. Don't tell me what Pastor Chris told you or whoever it is. Don't tell me what somebody else told you. Answer, who do you say that Jesus is? Because, beloved, Jesus comes into the particularity of your life to be known by you. Jesus asks each of us, who do you say that I, I am? Did you catch the last part of that? 
Notice the last word of Jesus' question is in the present tense. Who do you say that I am? Not who do you say that I was. More than 2,000 years later, Jesus isn't asking us, who do you think I was when I walked on the earth? Jesus isn't asking us, what do you think I did for you? No, Jesus is asking in the present tense, who am I to you? Who am I to you? And the answer to that question, who Jesus is, Christ's presence in your life and mine, is not reserved or limited to swooping in as we are about to die and taking us by the hand and leading us into the afterlife. No. Through the word and the spirit, Jesus is present here and now in your life and mine. Walking every step of the journey with us. Providing what we need. Shouldering the burdens we bear. Catching the tears we shed. Relishing the laughter and joy we share. And all along the way of your life and mine. Living not apart, but in, with, and through us. Jesus is seeking to inform and guide the thoughts the decisions, the actions we take, and in so doing, reshaping and encouraging the transformation of our person and our character. And again, there's a common link here for people who say, I don't know Jesus, I've never heard Jesus, I've never encountered Jesus, I I pray, nothing happens, and I don't feel any different. Mm Hmm. You're not any different because you're resting solely on what you know about Jesus, but you're not wrestling with knowing, being known by Jesus and knowing who Jesus is, not just about him. And some of this, I'm, 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 just in case you get a little frustrated, I'm setting a stage for next week because next week we're going to hit a little more deeply what's the difference. But for right now, for me, and I hope for you, I just want to just chew on the significance of the difference between those two things. Because really, the question here that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am, is the answer to this question. How much is Jesus a part of who I am? How much is Jesus a part of who I am becoming? We can't truly know Jesus as a part of the crowd. And this is a crowd, by the way. We can't really know Jesus as a part of the crowd. The crowds, we see it scripturally, engage Jesus with respect, reverence, honor. But the crowds do not engage Jesus with any insight into who he really is. To be a part of the crowd is to limit oneself to be an observer of Jesus. And many of us, if we're honest, are observers, spectators, but not disciples, not following Christ. We're happy to watch. Man, it's a good show. This is great. But rubber meet the road, following Jesus, I'll watch you do that. Wow. Fascinating. Good, good. Share with me. Tell me more. That's what it's like to follow Jesus? Wow. Back to living vicariously through the experience of other people. The crowd's relationship is not built 
on knowing Jesus. You see this again and again in the scriptures. The crowd's relationship with Jesus is not built on knowing Jesus. It's built on making requests, even demands of Jesus. And in the church, the church, let alone the world, we see the number of people sitting in the pew fluctuate based upon what? The demands or requests they have of Jesus. When all of a sudden you realize you can't live your life on your own, when all of a sudden a national tragedy happens, something global happens, we all are in the pew saying, God, help. Jesus, do something. That's the crowd. I got an itch, scratch it. I got a need, meet it. But you know this, we see it. When those requests, those prayers, those demands are not answered, the crowds are no longer engaged with Jesus. The crowds just disappear. And again, notice, Jesus doesn't ask the crowd. Jesus doesn't ask the crowd, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks those who commit to follow him. And so again, therein lies that question, who do you say that Jesus is? And don't answer too quickly, okay? Some of you have probably been answering it repeatedly in your head. But I really want to encourage you, and you hear that question, to take your time. Because I know what you probably are saying when I ask, who do you say that Jesus is? Because most, if not all of us, would answer like Peter. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But here's the thing. If that's what you were saying in your head, or if that's what you, you would, your response would be, is that profession of faith nothing more than a default, perfunctory response, a religious answer, words that have been so drilled into us that we've repeated so many times that we could recite them in our sleep? Or is that an answer that we're living through our lives? Is Jesus merely the Messiah, or is Jesus your Messiah? Have you ever even considered what the difference might be between those two things? Is Jesus the Messiah, or is Jesus your Messiah? You can talk all about the, the four spiritual laws, the cross, death, forgiveness, resurrection. That's how Jesus saves everyone. But if I were to say, how has Jesus saved you? How is Jesus saving you? Would you simply go, or could you be more specific? How is Jesus saving you from the thoughts that you have that you shouldn't have? Saving you from the decisions that you shouldn't be making? Saving you from the actions you shouldn't be taking? Saving you from yourself? Is Jesus the Messiah, or is Jesus your Messiah? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Or is Jesus our Lord and Savior? How might we view and treat others differently if we recognize that person, that stranger, even that enemy, as someone Jesus came to save and transform just like me? just like us. 
As Christians, we learn. We know the right thing to say. I mean, there's no way you're here this morning and you don't know the right thing to say when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The right answer is to say, Jesus is our Messiah and Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We all know the right answer to say. But do we know what we're saying? Do we understand how much do we wrestle with what it means to say that Jesus is our Messiah? In other words, what I'm getting at, does how Jesus purposes to save us line up with how we expect to be saved? Does how Jesus purposes to save us line up with how we expect to be saved? Do you remember John's, uh, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist? Do you guys remember John the Baptist? Do you remember, this again was earlier in Luke, how from his prison cell before his execution, John struggled to reconcile the reality of how Jesus was working with what he, John, expected. Do you remember this? Because the coming Messiah that John had announced was going to come with vengeance and power, ushering in justice and a new kingdom. But Jesus had to reassure and reorient John that inaugurating the kingdom of God came through the power of forgiveness, not retribution. And justice for all was ushered in through divine acts of hospitality, mercy, and compassion, not condemnation. Or consider Peter, right here. Consider Peter. Again, while it's not mentioned in Luke's version of the story, we know from Matthew's account that while Peter may have the right answer, Peter gave the right answer to the question through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember this? Peter struggled to understand the meaning of the answer he just gave. Right? Because as we heard, as Jesus goes on to describe the path set before him, the way of salvation for everyone as one of suffering, rejection, and inevitably death, Peter isn't having it. Peter isn't having it. Because Peter's understanding of who Jesus would be as the Messiah, how Jesus would save the world, didn't line up with his expectations for the Messiah. With how he expected to be saved. And so do you remember this? Peter initially tries to rewrite the answer to the question. He tries to rewrite the answer to the question of who Jesus is, of what kind of Messiah he must be. And by the way, this is again why our answer to who Jesus is cannot be based solely on what others tell and teach us. It can't be based only on that because we are all like Peter in that while we may confess Jesus as our Messiah, we fail, all of us, to grasp the full significance of what it means, what it looks like for Jesus to save us, to save the world. I mean, apart from when we're in church, after all, this kind of salvation, apart from when we're in church that we normally cry out for, the kind of salvation we normally articulate is protecting and securing our rights, our possessions, our property, our well-being. It's not surrendering our freedoms and sacrificing ourselves. And the heroes and champions outside of church we worship, the heroes and champions outside of church we worship are the ones who don't go down without a fight, who don't get themselves killed but instead beat the odds while everyone else perishes. It's all too easy for us, too comfortable and convenient to tell ourselves or find others who will tell us 
that the salvation Jesus brings looks exactly like the political party we're a part of. That the salvation Jesus brings is the national flag we've wrapped ourselves in. That the salvation Jesus brings happens to line up, surprise, surprise, with our work philosophy, our business ethic, the investment strategy we operate by. That our confession of Christ, of what salvation in Christ looks like, is no different than the standard of living, of consumption, the level of enjoyment to which we've grown accustomed. Again, from Matthew's account of this story, we know Peter doesn't get too far in his effort to remake Jesus as the Messiah in the image of his own expectations and plans. No, you recall, immediately Jesus shuts Peter down by telling Peter to stop trying to get ahead of him and instead to get behind him and follow his lead. And that's a good word for all of us who live into this answer that Jesus, the question that Jesus asks of who do you say that I am? Because the only way we can fully know who Jesus is is by continuing to listen and learn from Jesus himself. The same way that Peter and John the Baptist begin to know who Jesus is by receiving it straight from the source, by listening to and receiving the word and the spirit, that is how we keep learning and discovering the fullness of who Jesus is as our Messiah, as our Lord and Savior. And so one of the takeaways today is as we reflect on our answer to the question, who do you say that I am? One of the questions we got to sit with today is what false or flawed stories of Jesus have you inherited that you need to let go of? What assumptions, religious or otherwise, are you clinging to about Jesus simply because they're familiar? Because they're safe. Because they're easy. But fundamentally, when you take those assumptions and evaluate them against the teaching and character of Christ, you cannot get away from the truth that you need to put them behind you. Behind you. Beloved, we can't even begin to understand what it means to know Jesus as our Messiah apart from yielding to Christ's determination to demonstrate the love of God even if it kills him which it does. It's one thing for us to simply declare Jesus is our Messiah, to repeat to one another, Jesus saves us by dying for everyone on the cross. But as my dad used to say, talk is cheap. It's something else entirely to daily immerse ourselves. Again, our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, to our relationships, to daily immerse ourselves. It's an entirely different thing to immerse ourselves, to contemplate and be shaped by, let alone to share the kind of unconditional love, the kind of unbounded commitment, the kind of overwhelming and disorienting grace that shapes the salvation that Jesus expresses and offers to us as our Messiah. Because love and commitment and grace like that cannot be controlled. We cannot influence it. We cannot determine it. We cannot hoard it. We cannot channel it to our purposes. Love, commitment, and grace like that, all we can do is surrender before it. 
All we can do is surrender before the ironclad promise of God's salvation that is rooted in a universal invitation of welcome and homecoming for all. That is singularly delivered through the no-holes-barred manifestation of mercy and compassion in and through Christ. All we can do with love and commitment and grace like that is reflect it. Reflect its abundance to a wounded world that has learned to accept scarcity. A world that's learned to accept the scarcity of time, of goods and resources. A world that's learned to accept the scarcity of peace, justice, and lasting joy. All we can do is reflect the way, the truth, the life of eternal possibility. As Christians, we're good and well-practiced when asked about Jesus in repeating, and sometimes even debating, the theologies and interpretations of others. In offering boilerplate responses wrapped up in churchy language. But at some point, the question of who Jesus is, especially if we say we follow Christ, that question has to become personal. Because every day, Jesus looks at us through the eyes of the people we encounter. Did we forget where Jesus told us we could find him? Every day, Jesus looks at us through the people we encounter, particularly those who are hurting and suffering, and especially those we find strange, unappealing, or even our enemies. Every day, Jesus looks to us through the eyes of such people and asks, but who do you say that I am? And as Christ stands patiently, vulnerably in our midst, waiting for our answer, waiting to hear what we who profess to believe in him, what we who claim to know him, what we who confess to follow him, will say we dare not be silent to a creation longing for its redemption, to a world that moves ever closer towards its own self-destruction, in neighborhoods and homes where disappointment and despair so often eclipse hope, we must answer the question Jesus has put, not to a select chosen few, but to all of us, to each and every one of us. We must recognize Christ where he told us we could find him among the least of these, those who are suffering, isolated, imprisoned, and afraid. And we must declare Jesus to be not my Messiah or even our Messiah, but the Lord and Savior of all the world. In word and in deed, we must reflect the light and salvation Christ brings, not on my terms or according to our expectations, but his because the good news, you know it. You may know about it, but you got to know it. The good news is that no matter how far we run, no matter what we do or don't do, no matter what is done to us, God in Christ still comes to bless, to heal, to feed, to teach, to rescue you and me, all of us, even if it kills him. And yet, that good news is not of a life taken as much as it is of abundant life offered by Jesus in the name of love. A love that in proving to be stronger than death delivers a reconciliation, a renewal, a transformation that is inclusive of all and that is meant to be shared by everyone. A love, my friends, that reaches from everlasting to everlasting. That's who Jesus is.
And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.